Good morning. How are you? Good. Nice to see you on um, a beautiful fall morning. Today we are wrapping up this series on the early church as an irresistible force and how their experience should impact our own. But before we talk about the early church, I thought I would tell you about um, a time in my life when there were some irresistible forces at work for me. My sophomore year of high school, I moved from Casper, Wyoming to Aurora, Colorado, right in the middle of my school year. Part of me was really, really excited for this new adventure, moving from what some affectionately in Colorado called cow country to the big city. By the way, when I moved to Oklahoma, they made fun of me for the same reason that I once lived in cow country. Maybe some of you. Um, And a part of me was lonely and anxious because I left a youth group that had poured into my life and lifelong friends that I'd known since kindergarten. Two memories stand out from those first couple of months in Colorado. First, our family visited a lot of churches and we would hear people say, well, you should try this church or that church. And so we went to some and they had really big ministries and big programs, and they were, it was really kind of cool to walk in, but I felt invisible. I didn't feel like anybody knew I was there and felt overlooked until we stopped into this kind of little church, not tiny, but much smaller church called New Hope Community. And the day I walked in the door with my family, 20 or so high school students immediately noticed me, immediately invited me to join them. And within a week, I felt like I was a part of their family. They even invited me to the movies one night after youth group. And I remember visibly thinking, like, I'm not on the edge here. I'm, there there are 20 lined up and I wasn't on the end of a row where I'd been the last one in. I was literally in the center of a group of people, of friends whose names were Josh and Clint and Renee. And and they all surrounded me. I was in the middle of the row. They were on each side of me and in front of me. They encircled me. And it was a really wonderful, visible picture of what they had done for me. Uh, A bonus from that evening was getting asked out on a date a few weeks later. uh, But that's another story. Can't tell you that story today. Uh, the The other story that's really memorable for me about moving was that I went to Smoky Hill High School, which was about twice the size of my high school in Casper. And starting at the beginning of second semester in a high school is like trying to accelerate in a race that's already up to full speed. It's really hard to get plugged in. But one teacher made a huge difference for me. His name was Ken Carmen, and he was a linebacker size of a man. And that made sense when I found out that he actually had played Um, college football for Kearney State in Nebraska and then was drafted by the 49ers in 1967. And then I think within the first couple years he got injured and his professional career was over. Lucky for me because Mr. Carmen was an amazing teacher. And like any good, you know, coach kind of personality, he loved to call students by their last name. But I think it's the middle of the school year He already knows all the other students' names, and it was just a lot easier to remember that I was from Wyoming than my last name, so that's what he called me. So he'd say, Wyoming, how you doing? He'd be like, I'm I'm good, Mr. Carmen, good. I'd be walking past his classroom in the hallway. Wyoming, you know where you're going? Yes, Mr. Carmen, thank you very much. And then one day, my favorite, we had a fire drill, and all 2,000 students are headed outside during the fire drill, and a voice 
back there down the hallway. Says, Wyoming, you know where you're going? Yes, Mr. Carmen, thank you very much for now labeling me for the rest of my high school career as Wyoming. So Mr. Carmen welcomed me. Mr. Carmen helped me find my way. Mr. Carmen learned my story and got me up to speed in his class. Hashtag my favorite high school teacher ever. So this morning, I get to t- the privilege to talk to you about what I think is the most pivotal part of the passage that we've been studying in Acts 2. It's the last two verses, and it's about the church's radical hospitality. Let me read it to you, verses 46 and 47 of chapter 2. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The early church was an irresistible force because they welcomed people into God's story that was unfolding in their lives. They didn't even have it all figured out yet, but they knew it was something amazing. And they kept saying, please come hear the story, come with us. It was a remarkable story of purpose, of belonging, and of life change. It was a story that left people different once they encountered it. But it was also a remarkable story rooted in the simplicity of open doors and shared meals. Let me say that again. It was a remarkable story and it was rooted in the simplicity of open doors and shared meals. People in the first generation of following Christ were not strangers to inviting the stranger into God's story. It was already in their Jewish DNA. Let me give you a quick history lesson. In Deuteronomy 10, 19, it says, you shall also love the stranger for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19, 34 says, treat them like native born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. Ezekiel 47. 22 and 23, divide up this land among the 12 tribes of Israel. Divide it up as your inheritance and include in it the resident aliens who have made themselves at home among you and now have children. Treat them as if they were born here. Deuteronomy 26, 12, every third year you must offer a special tithe of your leave of your crops. In this year of the special tithe, you must give your tithes to the Levites, the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows, so that they will have enough to eat in your towns. There's a theme of welcome and hospitality throughout God's narrative, and it starts in Genesis. God has been inviting us to know him and welcoming us into his story since the beginning. Jesus embodies that welcome in his encounters with people. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 11. Matthew 25, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. So now we look at these experiences of the first people embracing the good news, and the early church is in a new chapter of the same story of God's welcome and invitation. So now that we've looked at all that, let's go back to verses 46 and 47, and let's 
unpack that for a few minutes. Let's just camp there for a few minutes. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, each day, not every other, not every couple weeks, every day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. See, I don't think that they got together and thought, okay, here's the formula for making people come to the family of God. I don't think that they had a plan that had three points to it that said, this is how the kingdom of God's gonna grow. This is how people will turn to Jesus. I think it was out of the flow of their hearts, of what God had done in them and how God had moved in their lives. And from that came a people who worshiped together, met in homes, and shared their meals. And because they did it, God grew the church. So let's look at those three things. That worship together thing. That is what I would call a sacred welcome. When you look at the word sacred, it means something that goes beyond ordinary limits. It surpasses what we understand, exceeds our expectations. It's something that's bigger than us. Something that gives meaning to what we did not have meaning for before. And so when they invited a friend to come and hear the story, it was something like this. We didn't have a canon of the New Testament where people said, okay, turn to the Gospel of John or turn to Paul's letter. No, they were individual letters and stories that were floating around. And someone at one home might have Luke's version of Jesus' story, and they would come and to each other's homes and say, come and listen to this story. Come and listen to this amazing thing that this man named Jesus did. And so their friends would come and they would sit around and they would listen, close their eyes. They didn't all have their own copies. They'd close their eyes and they would listen to the story and something would happen. God would be present and something would move deep within them. A few months ago, my daughter Lainey gave me, showed me this picture from NASA. It's kind of hard to see, but hopefully you, you get the gist of it. Can you tell what it looks like? It looks like a hand reaching up. NASA actually titled this picture, The Hand of God. Now that's billions of miles away. Scientifically, and I'm gonna totally, Lainey's gonna tell me later, you explain that wrong. But it's made up of tons of dust and particles and there's been cosmic action and things happening there and all the things that have happened have created something that to us looks like the hand of God reaching up this huge million mile hand somewhere in the universe. And I just can't help but think that that's God's wonderful gift to us to remember that he is there and that he is active in our world and in our universe. That we see a hand is a reminder that he is there and the people in the early church experienced that. They experienced something where they felt like the hand of God was reaching into their lives and drawing them to him because somebody gave them a sacred welcome. They also met in homes. It was a personal welcome. We didn't just talk on the streets or meet at a local restaurant. We had people into our homes. A home makes a big difference. 
when you let somebody into your home, they see if it's clean or dirty. They probably see more of interactions with you and your family and those little comments that you maybe wouldn't make at church on a Sunday morning. We see more of the real us when we go into each other's homes. There is an intimacy and a, and a depth that happens in a home that does not happen outside the home. I had the privilege of experiencing this welcome into a home uh, in a very personal way as a child. My parents, Bob and Dee Moore, were foster parents to over about 80 children over the course of 20 years. So before I was born, until I was about 15, uh, my house was chaos because there were usually anywhere from four to eight foster kids living at our house alongside my siblings and I. And so this is a picture of us in Excelsior Springs, Missouri in 1973. Um, and that cute little girl on her daddy's lap, that would be me. Um, and then the two boys on the very end of the front row are my brothers, Terry and Doug, and then my wonderful sister, Tammy, who attends here at Redeemer, was just a glimmer in mom and dad's eye at that point. So um, that's who, that's our family. That's who lived in our house. And most of those kids lived there four or five years. And they definitely needed a place of safety. They definitely needed a place where mother, where a mom and dad were not people to be feared. They needed a place where they knew where their next meal was coming. They needed a place where they could go to school and learn without a lot of other stress in their life. What a difference a home makes for anyone. Next is the life-giving welcome that the early church offered to people. They offered a sacred welcome to come into something bigger than they'd ever experienced. They made it personal and said, come to our homes. And then they fed people and they nourished people. And what I love is that yes, they nourished people with real food and we all love a good potluck, right? We all love that. I, well, okay, let me just speak for myself. When I go to someone's house and I know everybody's bringing food, there's a little bit of excitement that wells up in me because I happen to probably love food too much. So. I get excited about going and seeing what, every else, what everyone else is bringing and what kind of food I get to eat that night. But also the early church gave spiritual food, gave people something that sustained their lives beyond the experience. David Brooks, who's one of my favorite journalists and writers, wrote um, an article just this week called The Power of a Dinner Table. And he tells the story of this family who had um, teenagers, and some of their kids' friends, they were just concerned about them. They were concerned about possibly life choices, but also concerned about the support system they had in their home, and whether or not people were really pouring into their lives. And I don't know how it came about, except they decided the way that they could be a support is to invite their children's friends to dinner. So every Thursday night, their house, their dinner table was open for young people to come. But it, it didn't stop there. People would tell people, and then adults from work would get invited, and suddenly the dinner table on Thursday night at this house is 30 or 40 people. A few weeks ago, or sometime in the recent months, David Brooks took his daughter, and they enjoyed this dinner with this family. And when they left, his daughter said, I have never experienced something so warm in my entire life. And here's a girl who probably has a very stable home, a good relationship with her parents, 
really has a sense of identity and belonging. And it was the warmest thing she'd ever experienced to have dinner with all these different people of different ages and to be a family together around a table. Imagine, imagine what it's like for the young person that that was their only family dinner that week. That was the only safe place that they were going to have to be and to be a part. It's a life-giving welcome when we enjoy a meal together under the umbrella of God's invitation. So the early church does this, and then Acts tells us what happens. In Acts 4, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. In Acts 5, yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. And in Acts 6, so many people came to know Christ, came into the story of God's salvation, that they had to appoint what we would call at Redeemer a care team, deacons, who could take care of the needs of all the new people who were coming in, who could really meet them right where they were in their lives and give them tangible help for daily living so that the disciples could continue to tell the story. But what's amazing is by caring for people, they were embodying the story. They were the story. They lived the story. And every chapter in Acts keeps telling us how many more people said, I want to be a part of that story. Now, what we could do here, and what maybe they might have experienced, is to go, wait, I think we got something figured out here. I think we've got a formula that works. So we're going to have a sacred welcome, we're going to meet in each other's homes, and we're going to eat together. Great, and if we just keep doing that over and over and over and over again, we got it, we figured it out. But I don't know about you, I typically get to that point, and God goes, There's still something we've got to figure out here. There's another piece. And I think that when we read further into Acts, there's more to learn. Because what God demonstrates in the chapters after that is that it's also a welcome that often takes us beyond the familiar and the comfortable in our lives. That welcome doesn't just happen for the people standing right next to us or doesn't just happen to the person that we just happen to see at church, which we should be doing. I hope every one of you on a Sunday morning when someone walks by you that you do not know, I hope you will introduce yourself. And I know there's this fear of, yeah, but what if they've been going here for three years? Well, just so you know, we don't always know how long someone's been here, right? So here's what I do. And so if I can make a fool of myself, you're welcome to, too. I just say, hey, we haven't met. Now, every once in a while, somebody goes, we met last month. Okay, well, obviously I was, okay, I'm reintroducing and then I make sure I promise him I am not forgetting next time. That's okay. I think people would rather be recognized twice than never noticed. And then we have to go beyond what is our normal path, what is our normal activities. And God says, okay, now I'd like for you to maybe step out a little. Go a little someplace where you're not always there. This would be a whole other set of sermons, but just quickly, a few examples. Continuing through Acts. In Acts 8, God nudges Philip to travel south on a desert road, and he meets an Ethiopian man, treasurer for their government, 
And God says, go walk alongside. And because he listens and does what God asks, Philip has the opportunity to welcome a person who is very different than him. In Acts 9, God nudges Ananias to go and help Saul. You know, that Jewish leader who's been terrorizing all the people who follow Christ? And Ananias is like, whoa, hey, uh-uh. Do you know what he's been doing? He doesn't deserve my help. And God says, yeah, actually, he needs your help because he's going to change the world. He's going to take this story to every nation. He's gonna, it's going to spread like wildfire, but you need to go first. You have to step out of your comfort zone, and you have to welcome the person who may have done you harm. And then Acts 10, you know, Peter is one of my very favorite characters in people in Scripture. He's not a character. He's a real person. Peter is welcomed into Cornelius' home. Here's the thing, though. Cornelius is a captain in the Roman guard. He's a Gentile. We don't associate with Gentiles. They are not the people that we are allowed to go into their homes, have conversations with, eat meals with. Uh-uh. And God says, actually, I would like you to go to him. I would like you to put that bias behind you and go to him. And Peter has the opportunity to welcome the person that he may have judged. The early believers quickly learned that their faith in Christ and his love for them must inform their social, their vocational, and their political understandings. Whether they encountered someone whose journey is similar to theirs or very different, God called them to recognize that their welcome and hospitality of others reflected what they truly believed about the gospel. Was it really good news for everyone? It reflects what we truly believe about the gospel when we welcome. That God has extended an invitation from the beginning of time, and he would really love if everyone got the invitation. And does our welcome and hospitality reflect what we truly believe? Just a few things to think about. I don't have a specific answer for all of these, but I do feel like they are questions we should ponder. Is our sacred response to poverty and struggle in our communities more important than whether there's an R or a D in our political affiliation? Do we understand as the church that it's actually our job to lead the way in taking care of the poor and the orphan and the prisoner? Have we wrestled with our own call to help immigrants and refugees find peace and safety? Just so you know, I know that's a really complicated issue right now in our world. But it is the stranger, it is the welcome that God talks about most in Scripture of how we help the vulnerable stranger. So I don't think we're allowed to just do nothing. It would be awesome if the church could figure out something. What are we supposed to do? Students, are you able to walk down the halls of school or through any workplace that you're at and look for the person who's invisible, who you know feels invisible, who needs someone to take the first step. I would have had a really lonely high school experience if someone hadn't welcomed me. And that is really hard at that stage of life. In your jobs, there just may be somebody that needs a second chance or needs a little more understanding. They've been pegged as the quirky one at work, the one that irritates everybody, drives them crazy. I don't know. But God's like, 
Sure would like to welcome them. And are we willing to extend a hand of friendship and dialogue to someone who believes differently than us on the hot topics of our culture? What would happen if we stopped listening to the polarizing voices that are all around us and we just listen to each other and then talk to each other? Oh, and maybe he did it over a meal. And even better yet, maybe a meal in our homes. What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. An irresistible force would happen if we simply lived into the welcome that God has given us. If we offered a sacred welcome to this huge and incredible story of Jesus that has taken hold of our hearts, if we offered a personal welcome and allowed people into our homes and, and into our spaces, and we invited them to really know us, and if we offered a life-sustaining welcome, sharing our physical and our spiritual food with people who don't normally sit around our dinner tables and who don't normally interact in the circles of our lives, we would see the unmistakable, irresistible force of God flowing like a mighty river in our world, just like they did. Just like they did. I want to wrap up today with a story from my friend Nader Wadia. You may know Nader, and if you don't, I'm so excited to get to introduce you to him today. Nader is a Redeemer alum. So he went to college while he was attending Redeemer. He worked in our student ministry, and he now is on staff with Bridges International, which is on college campuses, offering spiritual welcome and friendship to international college students from all over the world. It's a branch of crew or campus crusade. Last spring, Natter is in Austin, Texas now, a rural church in Texas invited all the international students from Bridges to go jug fishing. Mm -hmm, that's what I did too, I kind of laughed. They knew, this church knew that this day was going to be filled with a collision of different worldviews, different religious beliefs, that didn't often intersect in their Christian demographic. Yet some, for some crazy reason, this little rural church in Burnett, Texas, felt compelled to welcome these students into their lives. And it was a life-changing day for both the hosts and the guests. Walls of assumption and misunderstanding came down as people sat on boats and talked on, on a warm spring Texas day. It was such a huge success that the students asked Natter all summer long, hey, when are we going fishing again? Well, they just had their second Red River fishing retreat this past weekend. I asked Natter to send us a little about what he does and a little bit about the story of their experience last weekend. Let's watch. Hello, Redeemer Covenant Church. My name is Natter Wadia. 23 years ago, a young man from Cairo, Egypt, uh, came to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he was picked up from a with a family from the Tulsa airport. That young man is me, and the family that picked me up is a member at your church, the Wakefield, Jim and Debbie Wakefield. Uh, they have shown extreme generosity to me and hospitality. And since then, it's been an incredible journey to be serving with a ministry called Bridges International. Bridges International is the International Student Ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, or currently called CRU. Our heart is to serve the international students that come study here in the U.S. 
and get, give them the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. Currently, there is about 1.3 million international students in the U.S. We're on 198 campuses, and my role with Bridges International is I'm the development director, the national development director, and I serve also on the executive team of Bridges, help giving direction to the ministry nationwide. I just want to thank you for being part of what we do and reaching the nations at our doorsteps. Thank you. My name is Tony Mahan. I'm from Belton, Texas. Uh, we're here this weekend because back in April we were invited to, to be part of a uh, ministry trip with uh, Hill Country Fellowship. And through them we met Bridges Ministry. I'm with Crosswater Outfitters and what we do is we take people out and, and uh, we use jug fishing as a way to, to uh, produce fish to be able to fellowship with everyone, man, woman, child, we, we catch our fish, they all participate in catching the fish, the harvest is, is wonderful, but more importantly, just being out and enjoying what God has created for us, the lake, the fish, the, the boating, and more importantly, the camaraderie together, brother and sisters, is, is Christ. And, and so I must say, through Bridges, we've opened doors for Crosswaters to, to be a stronger ministry, but as individuals, as myself, we look forward to the future of just growing together, getting to know the, the next generation and, and hope in fact that we can reach out to everyone. But I have to be careful because it was somebody that, that was from uh, Pakistan that didn't want their picture taken, but they, had felt so much love on the boat when we were on it that they literally were confused about why it is that they met us as individuals. They, they met us as individuals that truly love Christ, that have been through an amazing triumph like I have in my life. And during our conversation on the boat, because that's what's so great about being on the boat is that we we go out, we visit, we have fun, we go cliff jumping, we listen to the radio, we, we don't only just go fishing, we go become friends. There was a young man that came to me and he, he, he sat down next to me and he said, can I tell you some of where I came from? Because during our time on the water, I shared with him that I'm just a country boy from Belton, Texas. I'm not. I'm not the most well-versed man. I'm not the most educated man. And, I, and, you know, even though I have a degree, I'm not the most qualified man biblically to tell people things. But my love for God is so unbelievably strong because He has shown me the rewards of trusting and believing in Him for my losses in my family. And He came over to me and He had the a red tag that he was wearing and said, I can't have my picture taken because I could possibly have issues with my family having issues. And I, I asked him if we could pray, so we did. We actually prayed on the boat together. There was seven other people on the boat and he and I prayed together and he actually wept. He actually asked me, would it be okay if you and I talk to God and ask God to forgive me for where I have been in my life and haven't been able to reach out to Him. And I felt the same way because I grew up 
so abused and so lost in where I had been in my life that when he showed his true affection and his true joy for what he was seeing about Jesus Christ, strength down on the cross in God's will to make his life happy. But he had to leave. When we left, I didn't know if I'd ever see him again because he had to go home. He's here this weekend and I don't know how because he said he wouldn't be back. And he told me it was because he prayed on his own time that would he be back to see Uncle Tony, which all the kids call me Uncle Tony. And that's why he believes he's back. I've done a lot of amazing things. I'm very, very blessed in spite of any hardships I've had and in spite of challenges I've had. God has blessed me in seeing him back here this weekend and him hugging me and calling me Uncle Tony shows me that Jesus Christ died for a reason. 370 attended, 220 students from 55 nations, 27 college campuses. 50% would claim to be followers of Christ and 50% that is not their experience. 50 Bridges staff, children and volunteers. 40 fishermen from Crosswaters out Fitters Ministry, 50 volunteers from Hill Country Fellowship Church in Burton, Texas, and 100% certainty that God's goodness was shared and experienced as an irresistible force because someone said, come go fishing with us. Let's pray. God, we gather this morning and we know you are here and present and at work. And we ask the question, what in our immediate experience needs to be genuinely happening so that we can welcome? And whom, to whom are you calling us to step out of our comfort zone and offer radical hospitality? Lord, may we recognize the answer and respond today. In your name, amen.